On March 7, 1815, former Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte was a fugitive. He'd been exiled by King Louis XVIII, but now he was back in France. He and some of his loyal men were holed up in the village of La Frey. They were cornered by a battalion of the king's soldiers. The battalion had simple orders. Capture Napoleon or kill him. But Napoleon knew that there was a possibility that these royal soldiers would become loyal to him. So he took a drastic gamble. Napoleon walked out in front of the king's battalion. As they aimed their muskets at him, he proclaimed, quote, Soldiers, if there is anyone among you who wishes to kill the emperor, here I am. Then he unbuttoned his coat and exposed his chest. The gamble paid off. In awe of his bravery, the king's soldiers threw down their weapons and embraced Napoleon. In the days to come, even more soldiers joined them to build Napoleon a new army. As Napoleon and his men marched toward Paris, the news spread quickly. The emperor was back to reclaim his throne. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're exploring the lives of leaders who conquered the world and brought empires to their knees. Today, we conclude our special three-part dive into the life of French conqueror Napoleon Bonaparte. Last week, we explored Napoleon's early reign as he consolidated power, brought stability to France, and defeated his European enemies. As he reshaped the continental landscape, Napoleon's ambitions grew, escalating tensions between France and Russia. This week, we'll examine Napoleon's invasion of Russia and how it led to his downfall. We'll also explore how his attempt to reclaim the throne culminated in a dramatic showdown at Waterloo. We'll head back to Russia right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code SPOTIFY at checkout. 
By the summer of 1812, 42-year-old Napoleon Bonaparte had ruled France for nearly 13 years. During that time, he brought order to a nation that had been torn apart by the revolution. He also frequently crushed France's enemies on the battlefield. European alliances rose up five times to take down France and failed. Each time, Napoleon showed the world that he was the one in charge of the continent. But Russia refused to give in. By 1812, it was clear to Napoleon that Tsar Alexander I was an immediate threat. Napoleon didn't want to go to war with Russia, but he couldn't let Alexander threaten France's interests or his ambition to rule the continent alone. So on June 24, 1812, Napoleon led his grand army across the Niemen River and into Russia. He had between 615,000 and 655,000 men. At the time, it was the largest invading army ever assembled. Napoleon wanted a quick victory. Having defeated the Russians at the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805, he believed all he needed to do was give his foes a single massive blow. Unfortunately for him, the Russians had finally caught on to his strategies. After years of conflict, they knew that meeting Napoleon on the open battlefield was suicidal. So the Russian army pulled back and began a scorched earth campaign. As Napoleon's men marched through modern-day Lithuania, they discovered that the region had no food or supplies. The Russians had taken everything they could carry during their retreat. Even worse, they'd set homes and fields ablaze. Historian Andrew Roberts notes that because the region was poor and sparsely populated, there was a shortage of food and supplies even before Napoleon invaded. So by setting fire to the few villages and farms, the Russians made the area practically unsurvivable for the French. There was another serious issue, disease. In July, typhus fever spread through the French ranks. One month into the invasion, roughly 50,000 men died of typhus, with 30,000 more sick from other diseases. All of these problems led to something Napoleon wasn't used to, desertion. His men fled the ranks and struck out on their own for food and supplies. According to historian Philip Dwyer, as many as 90,000 men were roaming the Russian countryside, attacking, raping, and pillaging at will. To stop his men from leaving, Napoleon knew he needed to boost morale. Luckily for him, at the beginning of August, he learned that a major Russian army was stationed in the all-important city of Smolensk. In Napoleon's experience, nothing increased morale like victory in battle. He believed the major fight he'd been seeking was waiting for him in Smolensk, so he marched his men there directly. In August, French and Russian soldiers engaged in mild clashes just outside the city. Finally, on the evening of the 17th, French artillery lit the city on fire, ostensibly ending the battle. But when Napoleon entered the city the next day, he discovered it was deserted. Irate, he cried out, quote, the scoundrels, 
Fancy abandoning such a position. Come on, we must march on Moscow. On September 7th, the French and Russian armies clashed in the village of Borodino, about 80 miles west of Moscow. By the time he reached the village, Napoleon's forces were outnumbered. His army had been reduced to fewer than 135,000 men. The Russians, meanwhile, were roughly 155,000 strong. Still, Napoleon defeated the Russians, taking out between 40,000 and 50,000 men. But victory came at a devastating cost. Napoleon lost nearly a quarter of his army, between 30,000 and 35,000 men. A week later, Napoleon entered Moscow and found it virtually abandoned. Again, the Russians had ransacked the city's goods and the few Muscovites who stayed behind lit the rest on fire. Napoleon hoped that the defeat at Borodino and the sacking of Moscow would finally get Tsar Alexander to settle for peace. But Alexander refused. Instead, he ignored Napoleon's messengers. He said, quote, I would prefer to cease to be than compromise with the monster. As Napoleon waited for the Tsar to come to the negotiating table, he weighed his options. He considered marching to St. Petersburg, the Russian capital, or maybe seizing Ukraine. Unfortunately for Napoleon, the weather made a decision for him. At the time, sub-zero temperatures came to Russia in November. But in 1812, the cold arrived a month early, and Napoleon's men weren't equipped to face the harsh Russian winter. Napoleon decided to retreat to Prussia, where he could regroup. And on October 19th, Napoleon left Moscow. It took Napoleon's Grand Army two months to retreat into friendly territory. For those two months, they struggled to survive the brutal weather. Many of his soldiers lost limbs from frostbite or froze to death. Of the roughly 655,000 men Napoleon took with him to Russia, only about 85,000 returned. 370,000 men died. Another 200,000 were captured or missing. Tsar Alexander couldn't help but gloat. At one point, he proclaimed, What a career Napoleon has ruined! Having gained so much glory, he could bestow peace on Europe, and he has not done so. The spell is broken. Alexander wasn't quite right. Despite his Russian blunder, at home, Napoleon's reputation was still strong. When he arrived in Paris in December, he rebuilt his army. Still, Napoleon's enemies were inspired after they saw his retreat. Perhaps now was the perfect time to strike, while Napoleon was weak. The first enemy to mobilize was Prussia. Since their defeat in 1807, the kingdom had chafed under a lopsided alliance with Napoleon. By the spring of 1813, Prussian King Frederick William III had had enough. At the end of February, he formally cut ties with France and signed a treaty with Russia. A few weeks later, he declared war against Napoleon. Almost immediately, 
British weapons and Swedish troops funneled into Prussia, and the War of the Sixth Coalition was on. Napoleon marched into Germany in April 1813 with around 120,000 men. The speed at which he'd rebuilt his army was nothing short of a miracle. Unfortunately, the majority of his men were completely inexperienced. More than ever, Napoleon knew that the only way to defeat the coalition was with a decisive early victory. In May 1813, Napoleon won battles at Lutzen and Bautzen. However, both were costly, and neither was decisive enough to entirely knock the Russians or Prussians out of the war. Napoleon's chance for an early, whopping victory had passed. So in June, he and the coalition agreed to an armistice with the Austrians acting as mediators. For Napoleon, this turned out to be a colossal mistake. The Austrians were allied with France thanks to Napoleon's marriage to Habsburg princess Marie Louise. But like most of Napoleon's allies, they didn't trust him. None less than Foreign Minister Clemens von Metternich. During mediation, it became clear that Metternich's agenda wasn't to broker an equal peace, but to force Napoleon to give up territory. He wanted France out of Spain and parts of Italy, Germany, Poland, and Austria. In essence, Metternich wanted to undo nearly everything Napoleon had accomplished since 1807. Napoleon saw this as a humiliating demand. Not only would it bruise his ego, but the people of France would never accept it. Furthermore, Napoleon was convinced the Austrians were angling to join the coalition, which was true. At the end of June, Metternich signed a treaty proclaiming that Austria would join the coalition if Napoleon continued to refuse his terms. But Napoleon simply couldn't accept them. He would not give up all he'd fought for. It went against every instinct he had as a conqueror. So when the armistice expired on August 10, 1813, Austria declared war and swore it wouldn't stop fighting until Napoleon was defeated or dead. Coming up, Napoleon finally faces defeat. Hi, I'm Christine Schieffer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast, And That's What We Drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the spring of 1813, European powers took up arms against France for the sixth time. That August, Napoleon's allies, the Austrians, defected to the coalition. It was a bitter betrayal, but Napoleon believed in the end he could still defeat them, especially since he now had more troops of his own. By the time the armistice ended, Napoleon had 420,000 soldiers and 40,000 cavalry in Central Europe. Plus, there were roughly 250,000 conscripts in reserve should he need to call them up. Meanwhile, the Allies had about 555,000 men, but they were spread throughout the region and would be impossible to rally all at once. But what Napoleon didn't fully account for was the coalition's decision to change their strategy. Everyone knew that confronting Napoleon in an open battlefield was foolish since he was a brilliant strategist. Instead, this time, his opponents opted for the Trackenberg Plan. Similar to the Russian strategy in 1812, the plan was simple. They refused to engage Napoleon in battle, even if his army was nearby. Instead, they searched for Napoleon's field marshals, or secondary armies, who had inferior numbers. The plan worked perfectly. Napoleon only won a single major battle at Dresden in August. The rest of the year, he was left chasing the coalition forces as they wreaked havoc on smaller French armies. But Tsar Alexander still wasn't totally satisfied. He wanted a decisive victory in battle. For years, Napoleon won wars with knockout punches. Now, the Tsar wanted to strike one of his own. The opportunity came in October, when the coalition learned that Napoleon was pinned down in the German city of Leipzig. The Battle of Leipzig was the largest battle in European history up until that point. For three days, over half a million men from more than seven nations fought ruthlessly over the future of Europe. It turned out to be a battle of attrition. Napoleon's army lost supplies and defectors at an alarming rate, which forced him to retreat. When the smoke cleared on October 19, 1813, Napoleon was defeated. The victory at Leipzig was the defining moment for the coalition. After two decades, they'd finally humbled Napoleon which is when they sent him a list of demands, known as the Frankfurt Proposals. The Frankfurt Proposals went further than Metternich's initial treaty. Now the coalition demanded all of Napoleon's conquered territory. They wanted France to return to its so-called natural borders, meaning they would end at the Rhine, the Alps, and the Pyrenees. To add insult to injury, Metternich told Napoleon that the coalition wouldn't even consider peace talks unless he accepted the terms. And Napoleon still refused to bend the knee. 
However, unfortunately for him, the people of France were ready to submit. For the last two decades, they had endured his endless wars. By 1814, the revolutionary fire that drove so many to take up arms had been extinguished. So, back home, Napoleon struggled to rebuild his army. By the time he went back on another campaign at the end of January, he had only 70,000 men under his direct command. In spring 1814, he had several small victories. But not even these were enough to inspire the people to join him. Facing a dearth of French soldiers, the coalition steamrolled through the outskirts of France. On March 31st, Tsar Alexander and King Frederick William entered Paris. Napoleon was the first French leader to lose the city in nearly 400 years. It seemed the reign of Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte was over. But who would take his place? At first, the idea of keeping the Bonaparte dynasty alive by having Napoleon's son take the throne was considered. But eventually, several powerful French politicians, including Charles-Maurice de Talleyrand, who helped put Napoleon into power 15 years earlier, decided against it. Throughout the bulk of Napoleon's reign, Talleyrand had served as France's foreign minister. But now he was convinced that the only way to save France was by restoring the exiled royal family, the Bourbons. Meanwhile, Napoleon still refused to abdicate his throne, even against the advice of his most trusted field marshals. He considered dying in battle more honorable than surrendering. Unfortunately for him, he had no more battles to fight or men to fight them. Even his chief lieutenant in battle, Auguste de Mormont, defected to the Austrians. This betrayal was the final straw. Napoleon knew he couldn't make a final stand. On April 11, 1814, Napoleon Bonaparte finally abdicated. Two days later, he signed the Treaty of Fontainebleau, which paved the way for the restoration of the Bourbon dynasty and made Louis XVIII the King of France. More importantly, the treaty exiled Napoleon to the Mediterranean island of Elba, located in between Corsica and Italy. 44-year-old Napoleon Bonaparte landed at Elba on May 4, 1814. For all intents and purposes, he was set to enjoy a comfortable exile. As part of the Treaty of Fontainebleau, France agreed to pay Napoleon an annual income. He and his family would be allowed to maintain their titles and even entertain guests on the island. Ironically, some of his most frequent visitors were former enemies. British government ministers wished to hear tales of Napoleon's exploits, which he gladly provided and often embellished. Apart from his boredom, it seemed Napoleon couldn't have asked for a better situation. However, he suffered from a deep loss. His wife and son weren't with him on Elba. Initially, both of them were supposed to join him. However, Metternich insisted that Marie-Louise return to her family in Vienna. It seems Napoleon never saw her or his son again. 
Meanwhile, news of Napoleon's exile was met with pure joy among the French aristocracy. Among the commoners, the reaction was mixed, but everyone was relieved that peace was back. Unfortunately, that peace and order came at a cost. When Louis XVIII took the throne, he and his new government promised to enact reforms that balanced the ideals of the revolution and the monarchy. But with each passing month, it looked like the king was more interested in undoing the revolution. The new royal government replaced the revolutionary tricolor flag with the Bourbon fleur-de-lis. King Louis also increased taxes, allowed food prices to skyrocket, restored power to the clergy, and enacted a lopsided pre-revolutionary trade deal with Britain. To make matters worse, he angered the military by cutting the soldiers' pay and forcing them to attend mass. The king also appointed returning French emigrants as army officers. Many of these new officers had fled during the revolution and actually fought against France during Napoleon's wars. By the start of 1815, much of the French population had grown weary of the Bourbon Restoration. Over on Elba, Napoleon couldn't help but read these reports and smile. Deep down, he knew the people of France longed for his return. Napoleon didn't intend to stay in exile forever. His empire had been taken from him, and he wanted it back. In his mind, it wasn't a question of if he would reclaim his throne, but when. And with the discontent spreading through France, it seemed King Louis XVIII had practically opened the door for his return. It's unclear when Napoleon began plotting his escape, but we do know what pushed him to action. Napoleon still had loyal spies in France. At the end of 1814, these agents told him of plans to move him from Elba to an even more remote island. Furthermore, they said there was increasing support for his return among soldiers, which meant he could easily raise a new army. On Sunday, February 26th, Napoleon boarded a ship and quietly sailed off of Elba. Since he'd been given full sovereignty on the island, there was nobody to stop him, except British Navy boats patrolling the Mediterranean. Which is why Napoleon had his ship painted in British colors. The camouflage worked. Napoleon slipped past the British Navy, and on March 1st, his ship landed on the French coast, a few miles east of Cannes. It had been less than a year since the conqueror left French soil, but it was long enough to harden his resolve. Napoleon was determined to take back his empire, even if it meant plunging all of Europe into war once again. Coming up, the fate of Europe is determined by the Battle of Waterloo. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now back to the story. In April 1814, Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte was forced to abdicate the French throne. But as France regressed back into a Bourbon monarchy, Napoleon believed the people still needed him. So at the end of February 1815, he snuck out of his island exile in Elba and landed in southern France to reclaim his throne. Escaping Elba was the least dangerous part of his journey. Paris was nearly 500 miles away, and Napoleon had only around 1,100 men with him. Much of the territory he was about to cross was deeply loyal to the king. At any point, he could be captured or killed. But as he marched toward Paris, more than anything, he and his men were met with curiosity. Some French people were happy to see their old emperor. Others feared that his return meant more war. Still others were just confused. Hadn't he been defeated? They were especially disarmed by his changed behavior. Rather than behaving like the conqueror he once was, Napoleon now painted himself as savior. Throughout his march, he issued proclamations denouncing the monarchy and any attempts to return France to a pre-revolution feudalism. He told the people his return wasn't about restoring his power. It was about saving France. Slowly, more people across the region pledged their support. Until on March 7th, Napoleon stumbled across a battalion of royalist soldiers in the village of La Frey. Legend has it, he dramatically presented his bare chest and offered the men the chance to kill him right then and there. But the soldiers, overwhelmed with admiration for their old emperor, threw down their muskets and joined him. Whether or not Napoleon actually exposed his chest remains up for debate. However, the incident at La Frey was the first time enlisted soldiers defected to Napoleon's growing army. And it wouldn't be the last. When King Louis XVIII learned of Napoleon's return, he sent Marshal Michel Ney to intercept him. But Ney had been one of Napoleon's most trusted officers during his reign, so instead of fighting Napoleon, Ney and his men joined him. Ney's defection signaled to King Louis that Paris was actually at risk of falling to Napoleon. The former emperor now had an army of around 14,000 soldiers. And if Ney had switched sides, who knows how many more would do the same. On March 18th, Napoleon reached Auxerre, just 100 miles from Paris. It was too close for King Louis's comfort. On March 20th, he fled the city. That evening, Napoleon Bonaparte waltzed into Paris's Tuileries Palace. Without bloodshed or even firing a single shot, the emperor had taken back his throne. 
This time, Napoleon decided to take a different approach to governing. He reversed all of the king's reforms, especially those which pertained to the military. More importantly, he changed the government. Instead of a totalitarian dictatorship, Napoleon channeled the spirit of the revolution and embraced more liberal policies. He also ordered a new constitution to be drafted. It established a bicameral legislature, an electoral system, and trials by jury. France was, for the most part, thrilled. Napoleon's domestic support was strong. But the rest of Europe wasn't as charmed. On March 25th, Napoleon's old enemies formed a seventh coalition. Less than two months later, on May 15th, they declared war on Napoleon again. Surveying the situation, Napoleon realized that the best option would be to attack the British and Prussians in Belgium first. Once he knocked them out of the war, he would then seek out the Russians and the Austrians. But taking on the British and the Prussians wasn't going to be easy. They had a combined force of 242,000 men, while Napoleon's Army of the North had about half that number. Still, Napoleon was confident. He marched into Belgium in mid-June 1815. Then he earned a quick victory against the Prussians at Ligny, while Field Marshal Ney attacked British forces at nearby Quatre Bras. Unfortunately for Napoleon, the Ligny victory was not decisive. So he decided to pursue the retreating British and Prussians and crush them once and for all. The two armies met outside a small village south of Brussels called Waterloo. On June 18th, nearly 200,000 soldiers clashed at Waterloo. But before the battle began, Napoleon made a costly error. Instead of moving to attack at dawn, he decided to wait until nearly 11 a.m. It had rained the night before, and Napoleon's artillery commander recommended waiting until the ground was completely dry. In the process, the French gave the British and Prussian forces time to strengthen their positions. Meanwhile, Napoleon's commanders were making mistakes. Marshal Ney was a brave leader, but not a clever strategist. As the fighting began, he mishandled cavalry charges and engaged directly with an enemy unit that could have been taken out with artillery. Throughout the day, Napoleon's behavior and commands, too, were sluggish and listless. Some historians blame this on a bladder infection, which left him in severe physical pain. Whatever the reason, Napoleon's command over the battlefield wasn't as strong as in the past. The energy and decisiveness he'd brought to Austerlitz was gone. The battle was one of the bloodiest of the Napoleonic era. By the time the smoke cleared, 45% of the 200,000 men who fought were dead or wounded. But Napoleon was defeated again. At least, his enemies thought so. Napoleon didn't see the defeat as decisive. In fact, he held out hope that he could regroup and attack the Allies' supply lines. But many French politicians had seen enough. When news of the defeat at Waterloo hit Paris, a vast majority of Napoleon's political allies turned their backs on him. Without them, 
Napoleon knew his situation was dire, if not completely hopeless. On June 22, 1815, the day after he returned to Paris, he decided he had no other options left. He abdicated again, this time for good. Napoleon wanted to retire in the United States as a private citizen. At the end of June, he applied for a passport through the provisional government. He also made plans to escape by sea near the port town of Rochefort. But he wasn't working quickly, perhaps assuming that after all he'd done for France, he'd get a grace period to set his affairs in order. If that's what he thought, though, he was wrong. Back in Paris, King Louis XVIII had retaken the throne and would likely execute Napoleon if he captured him. Napoleon belatedly saw the writing on the wall and decided that his best chance of survival was to surrender to one of his many European enemies. He ultimately chose Britain because it was the only country who refused to bow down to him, which Napoleon respected. For two decades, the Royal Navy had blockaded France, sunk her navy, and funded various wars against him. To Napoleon, he was surrendering to a most worthy adversary. So on July 15th, Napoleon handed himself over to Captain Frederick Maitland of the HMS Bellerophon. Eight days later, he left France for the last time. Napoleon believed that if he surrendered to the British, he would get to spend the rest of his days in England. But once again, he was wrong about the treatment he'd receive. Instead of allowing him to live in Britain, the British shipped him to St. Helena. It was a remote island in the South Atlantic, located almost directly between Africa and South America. It seemed impossible that Napoleon could repeat his escape from Elba. Napoleon arrived at St. Helena on October 17, 1815. Upon first look, he cried, It is not an attractive place. I should have done better to have stayed in Egypt. For the next five and a half years, Napoleon remained on St. Helena. During that time, he wrote volumes about his experiences in war often exaggerating his accomplishments, downplaying his mistakes, and shifting blame to others. Although Napoleon managed to stave off boredom, he could do nothing about his deteriorating health. From 1818 to 1821, Napoleon suffered chronic pains that indicated stomach cancer, though he wasn't diagnosed for over two years. At the end of April 1821, Napoleon's health took a dramatic turn for the worse. He grew delirious and began vomiting up blood. A few days later, on the afternoon of May 5th, 51-year-old Napoleon Bonaparte died. Meanwhile, France tried to move on from Napoleon and the French Revolution. Across Europe, many nations returned to the control of monarchies. But by 1848, revolutionary fever spread again. Nearly every European kingdom faced attempted coups. In France, King Louis-Philippe was forced to abdicate in favor of a second republic. 
and the Republic's first elected president was none other than Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew, Louis Napoleon. Like his uncle, Louis Napoleon was ambitious. In December 1851, he dissolved the French government and gave himself dictatorial powers. One year later, he announced the Second French Empire, taking the name Napoleon III. Napoleon III remained in power until 1870, when he foolishly started a war against Prussia. After repeated defeats, he was forced to abdicate. The Republic was restored, ending the Bonaparte dynasty and the French monarchy, this time forever. Few dictators have had more impact on world history than Napoleon Bonaparte. One of history's most brilliant and successful generals, he died with a monumental record. Of the 60 battles he fought, he lost only seven. His victories completely changed the power dynamics in Europe, including ending the thousand-year Holy Roman Empire. And his campaigns helped spread the ideals of the French Revolution around Europe. Of course, Napoleon's violence and hubris also made him a polarizing figure. To some, he was a vicious tyrant who tried to conquer the world for his own personal aims, and those ambitions indisputably cost millions of lives. Regardless, though, there's no denying his place in the annals of history. After all, the entire period between 1799 and 1815 is referred to as the Napoleonic Era. Quite the accomplishment for a kid born on a small island in the Mediterranean Sea. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Among the many sources we used, we found Andrew Roberts' Napoleon extremely useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman, Andrew Messer, and Nora Battelle. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Werewolves, Witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.